I began in the last um, message a series designed for help young and old alike, calling it, You Can Win Like Jesus. In the last message, I told you that some people feel guilty when they are tempted. You should not feel guilty when you are tempted. Temptation is normal. You should expect temptation. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be tempted. Not possibly, you will be. Don't be surprised by it. Prepare for it. I also told you that the threefold temptations of Jesus in the wilderness summarize and codifies all other temptation known to mankind. All temptations that you and I have succumbed to or defeated, they all codified in those three. Because the first temptation was designed to get Jesus to distrust His Father's provision and satisfy His own needs. The second temptation was to put God to the test and to presume on the goodness of God. And the third temptation was to substitute the will of God the Father for the will of Satan. And who of us, not me certainly, can claim that we have never fallen in every one of those three categories? At some point, at some point in our lives. First, Satan did not want Jesus to rely on his Father's power and on his Father's provision. Instead, he wanted him to go for the shortcut, to take a shortcut. Please hear me out on this one. These three temptations can go under these three categories. It's temptation to pleasure, to popularity, and to power. Write them down. These three are the root of all temptations that are known to you and me and every person around the world. Now, I can testify to you as the Lord my witness. Every defeat that I have ever experienced in my life, it was because I succumbed to one of those three categories or subcategories. Let me act like the tempter. See if you recognize me, all right? I know people say, I'll play the devil's advocate. I'm not going to play the devil's advocate. I'm going to play the devil's role, okay? You have needs, right? Right? You have urges. You have desires. You have ambitions. Nothing wrong with that, right? So far, so good. Having needs are natural. We all have them. But then the tempter continues. All of these needs must be satisfied by you. Watch how the tempter works. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Being fully man, he was experiencing the hunger pain that you and I will never experience. I know I fasted for a day or two, and I'm telling you, it is not fun. But with the power of God, it's a great experience. Now, he's fasting for 40 days. Not 40 hours, 40 days. So he's coming to the point in his humanity to be absolutely starving to death. In fact, scientists tell us that no one can go past 40 days without food and still be alive. It's starvation to death. Watch how the devil it comes to Jesus you know, with this kind of novel idea of using his supernatural power to eat. When he comes to him, 
Not in the first day, not the 20th day, not the 30th day, but in, right at the end, just when about his, to break his fast, right close at it, he shows up. And of course, Jesus had absolute choice. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. He had absolute choice. Should I continue my obedience to the Father, or should I meet my own needs with my own power? Should I wait for the Father's timing, or take matters into my own hand? Should I continue to glorify my Father in my body, or gratify my own desires? Should I continue to be about my Father's business, or should I go to business for myself? Should I continue to serve the Father's purpose in my life, or should I demand that the Father follows my purpose in my life? It's that simple, and it's that dangerous. I was talking to a very successful young man, does not live in Atlanta, and his career is extremely successful for his age. As we talked on the phone for about 20 minutes, and we were talking, and I was walking him through the situation he's in. And, and, and then he's sort of in exasperation. He said, well, my frustration is that I can get the will of God to mesh with my will. <laughs> Guess what I told him? Welcome to the club. <laughs> I've tried it for years. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Listen, you have to hand it to the devil. What do I mean by you've got to hand it to the devil? I mean, just watch him. He's not crass. He's not crass. He's a master manipulator. He chooses his time very carefully when he attacks. He chooses his words very thoughtfully. Most often, he uses other people to tempt us. Other times, he sends one of his minions, and he's got billions of them, of these fallen angels, those demons. He uses one of them to come and to appeal to our flesh and to appeal to our fallen nature. Within every one of us, as part of our fallen nature, we want to satisfy our own desires. We want to fulfill our own needs, and we want to do it our way. Now, I know children struggle with that when we train the children when they're so little and so young, and we try to train them. Uh, even in the secular world, they talk about delayed gratification, and the psychologists really work hard on this, and the delayed gratification is, and how it pays off. And, and in fact, a, a very prominent psychologist back in the 60s at Stanford University devised this test, and, and he followed these people, these kids. Later on, those who were really trained to delay gratification did very well in life. But to understand the anatomy of temptation, which I talked about in the last message, we need to look closely at how Satan chooses his words. Look how he chose his words with Jesus. Verse 3. If, underline that, and I might be circle it, if you are the Son of God, he begins by bringing doubt to his mind. In the Garden of Eden, he came to Eve, and he brought doubt to her mind. Did God really say that? Did you really understand God correctly? It's just bringing seeds of doubt. Today, we have people who claim to be followers of Jesus, writing books to bring doubt about how God's Word is so clearly defined marriage. Namely, it's between a man and a woman. There are others today in our culture who gave up on doubt altogether and just came out in the open, and he said, Jesus is just wrong about this. So Satan begins 
by setting Jesus up. Every temptation begins by set us up, sets us up. The Father had just announced at the River Jordan, <laughs> He just announced publicly, openly, in the hearing of so many eyewitnesses, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is a divine Son of God. And so Satan comes in and says, if that is really true, and you really trust in your Father, use your power to verify that it is a reality, that you are the Son of God. Verify that this is a true statement from God the Father. See, Satan has only one desire in this case, is to get Jesus to disobey the Father. That's it. With you and me, he has only one desire. Every temptation you face, he has one desire. Get you and me to disobey the Word of God. Period. (laughs) And he doesn't come out in the open and and say to Jesus, uh, please disobey your Father. Go against the will of your Father. No. How can you be sure about the will of your Father? No. In the same way, he has one desire for you and me, and that is to go against what the Word of God said. Because he is too sophisticated to come out in the open and get us to go in disobedience. But he will come to you and say, let me do the tempter thing again. You are saved by grace, or are you saved by works? And all the Reformed people say, oh, I'm saved by grace. Of course, the Bible said, saved by grace through faith. Ah, you're saved by grace. That's nice. Isn't that great? Grace of God will cover all your sins. Why don't you just go and do your thing and sin to your heart's content? And may I just, you know, let the grace of God cover it. You saved by grace. You just told me that, right? You saved by grace. Why tithe? Tithing belongs to the Old Testament. Why tithe? You have financial needs. Don't tithe. But you miss out on the blessing because he doesn't want you to be blessed. He said to Jesus, Turn the stones into bread. Turn the stones into bread. It's a simple thing, really. And he says, you have needs, and you can meet your own needs. The very obvious part of the temptation is to fulfill a legitimate need by a miracle. And what could be more right than to meet legitimate need and desire? Let me here go again, being the tempter, okay? You need to be loved a certain way, don't you? But you are not loved that way now. Why don't you trust somebody else other than your spouse? Have an affair. Get on the computer and start watching some of those pornographic sites. You have needs, don't you? We already established that. You have sexual desires. Why wait till you marry? Everybody else is experimenting. You have needs. What Satan was saying to Jesus, what he says to all of us, through his demons and through the world, the flesh, and the devil, why starve to death when it is within your power to fulfill your desire? Beloved, the purpose of this first temptation was not simply to get Jesus to satisfy his hunger and his needs. When you and I are tempted, Satan does not simply want us to meet our needs. He doesn't give a ding-dong about your needs. 
Did you get that? He doesn't give a flip about your needs. But that's how he starts, as if he's on your side. He was saying to Jesus, hunger is incompatible with being the divine Son of God. He wanted to tempt Jesus not only to doubt the Father, but to doubt the love of the Father, to doubt the provision of the Father. Go ahead. Do what you should do. You have a free will, don't you? You're a physical being, and you need gratification and fulfill your physical needs. Oh, here's this one. If I heard it once, I heard it a million times. God wants you to be happy, doesn't He? Actually, I don't find that in the Bible. I find it says that He wants me to be holy. Well, you're not happy, so do whatever makes you happy regardless of whether it's against the Word of God or not. Just do whatever makes you happy. He gets you to elevate your physical appetite above honoring and obeying God. He places greed above contentment. He places indulgence above obedience. He places self-pleasing above self-surrender. And that's what Satan is doing here with Jesus. And that is why the series of messages is that you can win like Jesus. You see, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, three in one, they've been in perfect unity. In that unity, it was God the Son to fast for 40 days in the wilderness. And the devil comes in here, and he tries to put a wedge between God the Father and God the Son. He's trying to put a wedge within the Trinity. He wants to make two gods instead of one God. And he was turning one against the other. Be very careful when the enemy starts setting you up against a brother or sister in Christ. He's trying to separate you. Be very careful when the enemy comes in and puts a wedge between husband and wife. Be very careful, young people, when he puts a wedge between you and your parents. Be very careful when the enemy puts a wedge between you and the Word of God. Be very, 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 very careful. I can tell you without a shadow of doubt that whenever there is a dissension, whenever there is a division anywhere, wherever there is disharmony, whenever there is a strife, whenever there is discontentment, you can be absolutely sure that the devil has brought a sin in the midst of the situation. And there's only one way to deal with sin, and that's to repent of it. My young friends, old ones as well, listen to me. If the devil gets you isolated on the internet and pornographic website, you're in danger territory. See, whenever you convince yourself that you can live without godly friends and godly mentors, you're heading for danger zone. The first temptation that Satan loved at Jesus was to get him to go for the shortcut and get away from the Father's plan. That's the first thing he wanted to do, to get away from the Father's timing, <laughs> 
had Satan succeeded in moving Jesus from self-surrender to self-serving? Had Satan succeeded in getting Jesus to go against the plan of the Father? He would have succeeded in creating an irreparable rift between the Trinity, and your salvation and mine would have been in great doubt. Satan tempted Jesus to go to from self-surrender to self-satisfaction, and he failed. And so can he with you. You can be a winner like Jesus. Rely on Jesus and godly friends. And don't ever, 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 ever forget that Jesus had the power to do what Satan wanted him to do. And Satan does the same thing with our free will. Why wait for God's timing? Why wait till marriage Why submit to the will of God? Why obey God's Word when there is so much doubt by so many good preachers about the authenticity of the Word of God? And on and on and on. But I want to hasten to tell you about how Jesus defeated Satan, and He won over Satan and over temptation, and how you can win too. Jesus won by absolutely, completely, and totally trusting and submitting to the written Word of God, the Bible. Listen, Jesus' response to Satan is incalculable humility. Jesus Himself is the Logos. He is the revealed Word of God. He is the Word of God. He is the second member of the Trinity, and yet He upholds the written Word of God with all of its authority high up in His life. I know it is fashionable these days by some preachers, even in evangelical churches, to say, well, you know, there are just some parts in the Bible cannot be taken literally. Other parts, uh, you know, we're just not sure about this and not sure about this. And so-called evangelical pastors, let me tell you something. All I want to say is stop. Who in the world is going to decide which parts are this and which part is that? It's the height of arrogance. They're placing themselves in God's place. They know better than Jesus who submitted to the written Word of God, who used the Word of God, who obeyed the Word of God. And it flies in the face of logic. Jesus said, it is written. It is written. It is written. Three times, it is written. Here he said, man shall not live by bread alone, Satan, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All three winning responses stemmed from and founded upon the written Word of God. Don't let anybody undermine the authority of the Word of God, because that's the beginning of trouble. Each time he said, it is written, it is written, it is written, meaning it is final, it is not open for debate, it is not open for discussion, it is not open for interpretation, it is not open to change, it is not open to modification, and it is not open to being watered down. No wonder Psalm 119, verse 11, David said, I treasured. Can you say that with me? I treasured. He said, I treasured. (laughs) Not debated, not try to figure out what it means, not to doubt it, not to reinterpret it, to fit the culture. I treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's far better to trust God 
and to wait for His provision than to go for instant gratification when you think you need it. Those words, of course, were spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which Jesus quotes here in the Scripture. He believed all of the Old Testament. He believed all of it. And they were given originally through Moses to the people of God in the wilderness. Here's a fact. As a young boy, Jesus memorized the Word of God. He studied the Word of God. He internalized the Word of God. At the age of 12, he was sitting in the temple teaching the elders. (laughs) And my beloved friends, listen to me. When you love and uphold the Word of God, regardless of your age, you will be a victor, and you will win like Jesus. Moms and dads, would you be patient with me? You heard me many times that I've made many mistakes in my parenting. But when you teach the children to read the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, to internalize the Word of God, when you model that for them, you're going to keep them from looking for shortcuts when they get older and disobedience. I can tell you most assuredly, the way we train our children and model godliness for our children is incalculable when they grow older. I like the story about the four pastors who were debating which translation of the Bible is a better translation. Well, the first one said, I like the King James Version. It's really uh, poetic. It's Old English. I just love that translation. And the second man said, no, I really like the American Standard Version. It's a more accurate translation. And the third one said, well, I really like the Living Bible because it it makes hard concepts easy to understand. I like the Living Bible. And and the fourth one was quiet for a minute, and then he said, "Uh, I really like my father's translation the best. I said, oh, what is that one? He said, it's the one that he read and obeyed. It's the best translation. When they see the Word of God working in you. We in this church totally committed to instruction and helping our children and helping our students in every way. Our meetings, you should come to our meetings of the pastors are constantly saying, how can we do this? How can we serve the family? How can we serve? How? I mean, that is the cry of the heart of every one of your pastors here in this church. But I can tell you, with all of our hard work, all of our efforts, all of our trying, all of our… We cannot substitute the home. We cannot substitute what mom and dad can do in the house. I was thinking about this, and I thought of a true story. It took place in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, there was this, the beginning of this liberal theology of doubting the Scripture, criticizing the Scripture, tearing the Scripture. That school came from Germany, and actually that led to the Nazis. And and always, whenever the Bible is torn apart, you're going to lead to some horrible ideology. And this American dad was talking to his son, and his son said, Dad, I want to go and do an advanced degree in divinity in Europe. And the father, oh, can think about all what he read about how these liberal theologians are tearing the Bible apart, and this is a myth, this did not happen, and this, that, and this, the other thing. And so he said to his son, he said, be very careful lest they take the book of Jonah out of your Bible, meaning that they'll teach you that Jonah is a myth. Amazing. When Jesus himself 
relates to Jonah and said, just like Jonah was buried in the, <laughs> in the whale, I will be buried in the tomb. But that doesn't matter. It's a myth. So the boy did something that really mischievous. Before he went to Europe to study under these liberal theologians, he went over to his dad's Bible, and with a razor blade, he tore out the book of Jonah out of his father's Bible. They can't tell that the pages are missing. And then he went to study for two years. Two years later, he comes home, and the father said to him, Son, is Jonah still in your Bible? And the boy laughed. He said, Oh, Dad, Jonah's story is not even in your Bible. The father was so indignant, and he said, It most certainly is. He said, Okay, let's look at it. Brings his Bible, and the father fumbles through the Bible, going back through it, and kept looking, kept looking, and couldn't find Jonah. And he said, I, I don't know how that happened. And the son said, Dad, I took those pages out of your Bible. I tore those pages out. He said, Dad, what is the difference between my losing Jonah by studying under liberal professors and you losing Jonah by not reading it? Now, beloved, I want to tell you, that convicts us as dads and moms. It's easy for us to preach at our kids. I know that more than anybody else. But it is daily modeling, studying, internalizing, and obeying the Word of God is what really matters in the end. Unless we daily feed upon the Word of God, it becomes difficult not only to know it, but to believe it and then obey it. Then you get some slick preacher who comes along and throws doubt on the Word of God, and we fall for it. It's happening all across our land. It happened in Europe until the church is only a shell. And when that happened, the Word of God ceases to be a sword. The Bible calls the Word of God a sword both in defense and offense. And if Satan did a number on Christians today, he let them have more than ten Bibles in their homes. But every statistic showed very few really read it and study it and internalize it. May this change today. May every home that's represented here and all those whole thousands of people watching around the world, may this change today that as the world gets darker outside, that we will hold on to the light of the Word of God. Our Father, we are so sorry that we have neglected Your Word. And as a result, this wholesale departure from the faith, people don't know what the truth is anymore. Forgive us, Father. Forgive me. Forgive us. And Father, we come to you in humility and brokenness and ask you, let your word be a light and a lamp unto our feet. Help us to consume it, to feed on it, and grow strong by it. For that's the only hope we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.